First Timothy chapter 6, uh, 11 through 21. So to kind of give you a brief recap, um, what is the book of First Timothy about? It's a book written to Timothy, a pastor of the church of Ephesus, who was commanded through this book on how to run the church and some things to do. And we've studied it and tried to glean what should we as a church do uh, in order to try to hold true to some of these things. So we've seen that the church is to stand for and defend the truth. And the church does this through structuring itself properly, through the purity of its leaders. We looked at qualifications for that. The protection of its doctrine and the godliness of its members. Any one of those things starts to get off kilter. Things in the church can still function to a degree, but it will not be as optimized as if as it will be if we follow these things. So this week we're finishing the letter. There's a few more general instructions. Uh, I'm going to read our passage and then I'll tell you how we're going to go through it because it's going to be a little bit different. So First Timothy chapter six, and uh, I'm going to start in verse eleven. <clears throat> it says, "But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love." steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who is who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So as Paul finishes his letter here to Timothy, he gives kind of some general final instructions and charges. So what I want to do tonight, instead of going verse by verse, it's going to be a little bit different. I want to look at all of the different charges that sum up the end of this letter and kind of lay them out, go through them one at a time, and then we'll conclude the letter together. So we'll be going back and forth a little bit through this. If you look here in verse 11, it says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. So this is the first charge to Timothy. Flee these things. We should be asking, well, what things? If you back up just a little bit, there's a list given. There's controversy, using godliness as a means of gain, the love of money, These are the things that Timothy is to avoid. And if you look at the rest of the verse, as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. So Timothy is told to flee ungodliness and to pursue and seek after godliness. 
If you've heard of addition by subtraction, this is like subtraction by addition. You are removing something in your life by putting something else in its place so that nothing else can creep in. To give you an example of this, imagine going to a family gathering. Um, we ate today with the Operation Christmas Child little celebration thing at Francis's house. It was all this food. And so we go through, and I'm reminded of going over to family meals. And no matter where you're at, you get your plate and you go through, and there's always just that one thing. For me, it's anything green and leafy, almost. Uh, but there's always that one thing that you get your plate, you're going through, and you think, oh, that dish. And sometimes it's a family member that brought it. You don't want to hurt their feelings. You're like, oh. And they've already told you, like, oh, you need to be sure you try this. Ugh. So you go through. The best way to avoid putting that on your plate is to get a little bit of everything else and fill up your plate. You get the dressing, pile it on, a half plate. You get the cranberries. You get all the turkey. You get the little weenies wrapped in the bacon and brown sugar. You get the little sausage balls, mashed potatoes, sweet potatoes. And then you get to the broccoli. And you're like, oh, I'm out of room. <laughs> Man. I was really looking forward to that. And then your wife comes in and says, oh, I'll make room for you and scoots it over and puts it on there. But the point is that you fill up your plate with all the other stuff so that when it comes around to the thing you really don't want on there, there's no room for it. And that's kind of the idea here that he's talking about. If we fill our lives with godliness, there is no room for ungodliness to come in and to take up residence in those things. <clears throat> We see this in some other places as well in Scripture. James 4, uh, it's a chapter about, uh, it's a warning against worldliness. And if you're a friend of God, you're not going to be a friend of the world. Well, in verses 7 and 8, God tells us how we can avoid this worldliness. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So the way to resist worldliness is to submit to God. And the way to submit to God is to resist the devil. So if you imagine kind of these two sides, I want to avoid worldliness and I want to pursue godliness. Well, it makes sense. We need to turn away from these things. That's resisting the devil and turn toward and submit to God. You cannot do one of those without doing the other. You can't submit to God without turning away. So whenever we don't turn away and we open the door for some of these things, we shouldn't be surprised when we're not pursuing godliness in our lives to the degree which we want. When we read scripture, these things that we're commanded to do, sometimes it's not just that you're not trying hard enough to turn towards the right thing. You're not putting forward enough effort to turn from those wrong things. Another example of this is in Philippians 4.8. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If you've ever heard the saying, an idle mind is the devil's playground, then the weight of this verse and its, ap its applicability here will make a lot of sense. You'll know the weight of this advice. As we fill our minds with what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, whatever is good, right, excellent, anything worthy of praise, we are taking away opportunities for unrighteousness to creep into our minds. This is a very hard practice to do if we are not providing our mind with the meat that it needs to feast on in those things. 
Whenever we fill our minds with whatever is true, right, honorable, just, there's a source that that comes from. It doesn't just come from nowhere. It comes as we digest God's word and we're filling our minds with it. And as we're filling our minds with God's word, Romans 12 says that our minds are transformed and they don't conform to the pattern of the world, but they are renewed and transformed and made new. So this is how we pursue godliness is we flee from these things. So he continues here in verse 12. Here's the second charge that I see. He tells him to flee these things and pursue righteousness. Verse 12, he says, fight the good fight of the faith. This phrase serves as a bookend for the entire book. And I really wanted to, as I got to studying this and looking at it, you read through the passage and you notice so many words here. I'm I'm curious to know how many you noticed reading through. But if you go back to chapter one, and I would even uh, invite you to do this now as I'm speaking, go back and look at chapter one and, and really the whole chapter. But even if you just look at verses three through 11, if you read through these two paragraphs and then flip back to chapter six and start around verse three and four and then read down through those paragraphs, you're going to notice something really interesting. He uses a tremendous amount of the same words and phrases in the beginning of the book as he does in the end of the book. And this is one of the easiest places to see it. So in in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul tells Timothy, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And then at the end of the book, in verse 12 of chapter 6, he says, fight the good fight of the faith. So wage the good warfare, fight the good fight. In verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. So this isn't the only idea that's repeated. I made a small list. I really wanted to put something up and, and kind of highlight, but it was too confusing to do it that way. But some of these different examples that you can go and look at on your own a little bit later. In chapter 1, we see references to different doctrine and sound doctrine. And then in chapter 6, different doctrine, sound words. Chapter 1, we see the word charge come up multiple times. Chapter 6, the word charge coming up multiple times. Chapter 1, there are those who have swerved and who have wandered away. In chapter 6, there are those who have swerved and wandered away. Chapter 1, there's a stewardship from God that you're entrusted with. Chapter 6, guard the deposit entrusted to you. In chapter 1, wage the good warfare. Chapter 6, fight the good fight. So the bookends of a book are almost always a good indicator of what that book is going to be about. When we studied the book of John, first thing we did when we started off, we looked at chapter 1 and we went all the way to the end of John and found those bookends that what is the book of John about? So if we look at these bookends for 1 Timothy, based on these words and phrases, here is the intended message of the book. Your faith is a battle, not a ball. We are not here to party and celebrate, though we have a lot of things to celebrate. Primarily, 1 Timothy says... We need to prepare to fight because we have a task and it's it requires rigorous discipline, not relaxed discipline. The church should be fighting tooth and nail to grow in the knowledge of God and to apply that for godliness in the life of its members. That's what we should discipline ourselves for. And that's the message of this book. This requires training, discipline, sweat Determination, 
work, sacrifice. We don't expect our Gina Giants to do well in football without going to practice multiple times a week and listening to the coach and forcing their body through these grueling exercises. Kristen has started getting really into exercise and stuff with PE. And so after dinner, one day she finished early and she was showing me and Stacy all the exercises she's learning at school, which praise God, if you want to exercise after dinner, you go on ahead. I'm going to sit here and eat. So I'm sitting here eating and she's showing us in the living room. And so she's doing the exercise and she's like, oh yeah, mom and dad, come do it with me. And Stacy, great mom, she's like, okay, yeah, and gets up and like, mm, okay, I'm going to finish eating. It's like, oh, come on, it'll be fun. Okay. So we get up, and Kristen's doing these jumping jacks, and then she's doing one. We called it squat thrusts when we were in school, but you have to, like, standing position, squat down, throw your legs out to a push-up position, come back, stand up, and then do a jumping jack at the end of it. And so she is pumping these out like it's nothing. I managed to get two out and then stopped before I threw up. I mean, it, it, it was very difficult for me to do, unfortunately, I have to say. But Kristen is pumping things out, and it's because her body is in a better physical condition than my body. I just have to say it for what it is. Well, why is my body in the condition it's in? Because I have not been disciplined. I've not been disciplined. I, I've, I've been comfortable. I, I don't want to go out and run. And I don't want to do exercises and lift weights. Well, what's the consequence of that? The consequence is that someone else who forces their body into submission will be able to do things that my body cannot do. This is the message for the church. Our church will not be able to physically or spiritually do what we don't force ourselves to prepare to do. This requires training, work, What's the enemy of this type of training? Comfort. What's the enemy of progress? Comfort. What's the enemy of growth? Comfort. I used to challenge my students in discipleship. We would try to memorize large portions of scripture. And they would come back and a lot of times they wouldn't make it. We would try to read through the Bible in a year. Several times they wouldn't make it through. And like, Brother Garrett, you set the bar so high. I'm like, yeah, but guess what? How much of the Bible did you read this year? Oh, about three quarters of it. Have you ever read three quarters of the Bible before? They're like, no. Success. You didn't reach the bar, but man, you got a lot higher than you would have gotten if I hadn't set that bar so high. And that's what it is in the church. Well, what is the friend of comfort? When we get comfortable, what things accompany that? Self-centeredness. What's the friend of comfort? Laziness. What's the friend of comfort? Apathy. Whenever we do not train and we get in a position where we're just comfortable, like me sitting at the dinner table eating my mashed potatoes, when I get comfortable, what happens is I stop developing muscle. And I get lazy. And I don't want to get up and do that now. And it takes something... My daughter in this instance, and my wife, to say, you should discipline yourself more. Because we won't see growth and strength develop if we don't. And that's the message for the church. The hardest part about this is that most of the time, it's not that we don't want growth. We do want growth. 
The problem is that we want growth without having to sacrifice our comfort. We've created an impossible equation. How can I have both? I don't think we can have both. I got a text from a friend today. He's reading a book. I think it's uh, the name of the book was maybe uh, The Dark Frown of Providence. I, I don't remember the name of the book, but he shared a quote in it that I think is relevant. And the quote from the book from a guy named Murray, it was to the effect of some people believe that or some people ask, how is it possible for God to develop character without suffering? And he makes a statement that that's a made up scenario. It's a made up scenario. God has already chosen to use suffering in our lives to develop our character. We see that perseverance producing character and endurance. And I think it's the same thing with, with this in the church and this fighting. We've made an impossible equation and said, I want both, but we can't have it. And we get frustrated when we can't figure out why the math doesn't add up. The faith is a fight that requires discipline and hard work if we're going to see godliness in ourselves and souls saved in Gina through the gospel and others. It's going to take work. So the next charge here that I see is in verse 14. He says in 14, uh, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the commandment here, it's singular. And I got to looking at this. This word can also be translated order. And some translations, mine didn't, some translations uh, opted for that in a passage in Luke. And I think considering the language of fighting and charges that are given, that it's an appropriate translation here. I think that the idea is that Paul is telling Timothy and us to endure in our charge in this work of fighting. It says, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord. That means continue to do this till the end. Don't lax up. If we kind of keep with the same analogy of physical fitness, when your muscles are under strain for a long time, what starts to happen? Kristen's doing archery now, and we got to go watch her shoot for the first time. It was this last Thursday, I think, or the one before. And she held up her bow, and she pulled it back, and she was releasing. Well, we got her a bow to be able to use, but the tension on it was too hard for her to use. Well, she tried to pull it back and got it all the way back and held it and kind of held it tight for a second. Well, then her arms kind of started shaking. As that tension is held out, the longer she's holding it, her muscles are just starting to shake, and she can't quite keep keep it still like she like she was with her other bow. And it's the same thing here. When we're fighting the good fight of the faith, over time, we become more susceptible to mistakes or to slacking off as that tension is maintained. One of the other exercises that Kristen made us do was a plank. So if you don't know what a plank is, you get in a push-up position, but kind of on your arms is what we did, and raise in push-up position, flat body, and you just sit there. You just sit there. It was like a minute. And we're holding, and your abs are burning, and it's and you just feel your body starting to shake. And the longer you hold, what I really want to do is just put my knees down for a little bit of relief. And look like I've got the plank, but I, I kind of eased up to relief, 
to release, release the tension on that and give some relief. And sometimes we do that in our fight as well. Over time, we get tired, so we start to take shortcuts. We slack off a little bit to, to ease up that tension. And what we're told here is to keep this charge, the commandment, pure and above reproach. Basically, he says, don't give up. Don't compromise. Still keep going. One more lap. You're almost there. The Lord will be back soon. We maintain this level of fighting all the way until the very end. We may graduate from school and retire from our jobs, but there is no graduation and there is no retirement for the Christian this side of heaven. It doesn't exist. You don't retire or graduate from your service to God's church or our ministry to the world. It doesn't matter if you're 18 or if you're 80. We fight. Now, that doesn't mean that your charge won't change. Your charge does change. Many of us are not what we once were. We cannot do the things that we once could do. Some of us, we haven't given ourselves that opportunity yet. We haven't gotten busy because other people have done work. This is a charge for us to get busy and to start fighting the fight. <clears throat> so um, he, he goes on next in verse 17. He, he leaves the charges to Timothy, and then this next charge is to the rich in the present age in verse 17. It says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them... Not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So the charge is set your hope on God. And you do this, he contrasts it with two things in the verse. One, with being haughty or prideful. Or the second, the uncertainty of riches. The word haughty and prideful, it's a compound word combining the words for high place and understanding. So it's this pridefulness that thinks... I have this higher level of knowledge than everyone else, and I am, I am sufficiently sustained in my knowledge. So one way to put this is that these two scenarios is someone who says, I have enough knowledge or I have enough money to be able to accomplish what I need to accomplish. Instead of saying, God, I don't have enough knowledge, and I can't rely on my money, and I need you to sustain my ministry. That's the contrast here. So one way to put this is don't trust your own knowledge or your money. Trust God. When we place our hope in our knowledge, what we're saying is, God, I don't really need to learn anything else from you. Let me tell you the, the time that we are most susceptible to this is as we get older. We spend more time in the church. Our Sunday school lessons are starting to cycle back through books that we've already studied before in Sunday school. And we think, oh, I've... Why are we studying this book again? We've already studied it before. Or as you're reading through the Bible, maybe some of you make a commitment to read through the Bible every year. Well, after the 20th time, you think, I mean, I already know this book. I've read it 20 times. What this is telling us is there is no knowledge that is too high. You cannot achieve that knowledge and say, okay, I'm there. I'm high enough. There's always more to learn. And this is part of the fight. We have to recognize this. We have to recognize that we need God to continue to feed us and to grow us. When we place our hope in our money, then money suddenly becomes that thing that's required for ministry to work. But this is a lie. 
This is a lie. Money is not required for ministry. If you want to see an example of this, go and look at the numbers of Christians in China. They don't have beautifully orchestrated buildings like this unless it's approved by the Chinese Communist Party. But the ones that aren't approved, they don't meet in buildings like this. They meet underground and pull together the little scrap of money that they have, and the church is exploding in the midst of that persecution. You don't need money to have a successful ministry. God is required for ministry to work. When our hope is on God, verse 17 says that he richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We will not rely on God when we think that we have everything that we need. And that's the point of this. The point is not to say we don't need money at all. Money is a useful tool, but that's not what makes our ministries successful. We will always have something to learn. It doesn't matter how long you've been in church or how many times you've read the Bible. And our money will always be one moment away from vanishing. One moment away from your retirement going out the window. One moment away from astronomical inflation that's going to suffocate us, we feel like. It's uncertain. And the pandemic, if it's taught us anything, it should at least teach us that. It's uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen sometimes. So what do we do? What do the rich do? He says a little bit further down in this passage here, verse 18. Do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. We need to be ready to give of ourselves to others for the cause that we're fighting for. Our money, our time, our acts of service. I was really encouraged, church, to see I walked in and we dropped off our presents for the uh, angel tree. I know it's something different here, but it's basically like an angel tree. We dropped off our gifts this morning and I was really encouraged to walk in and see that table and all those gifts piled up there for those kids. That is so good. Let's do more of that kind of stuff. Our money is not ours, it's God's. Let's, let's be generous and do those kind of things. I was very encouraged to see that. So he gives kind of a summary statement here in verse 20. He says, Oh, Timothy, this is kind of the last charge here, guard the deposit entrusted to you. This is our charge. What was entrusted to Timothy wasn't just entrusted to Timothy. God is entrusting his church with it. We are entrusted with this. It's like Timothy has carried the baton to his church, and then they carried the baton and passed it on to their church, and they carried it on and passed it on to their church, and now we have the baton. And written on this baton, the gospel, it says, guard this deposit. And now it's in our hands. We are charged with guarding this. We need to prepare ourselves for that. We need to do some exercises. Get the blood pumping. Get ready. It's a lot of work to be done. Guard the deposit that was entrusted to you. We need to fight to guard the deposit. We need to fight to spread the truth of the gospel to the world. We need to fight to protect the truth of the gospel in the church. And we need to fight to manifest the fruit of the gospel in our lives. Why? Because it's a God-given charge to us. And I passed over this a little bit earlier so that I could come back to it now. But if you back up to verse um, 15 here, it describes God, the Lord. It says uh, to keep the commandment unstained 
um, until the appearing of our Lord, which he will display at the proper time. And then it describes God here. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is the God that we serve. And he's charged us with the task to fight. So let's fight the good fight of the faith. I've got some things that I'm looking forward to for next year. Um, we are still planning on going back to having Sunday night services. Still trying to iron out some details on that. So we'll update you soon on it. Um, but this is one of the things that I would like to see us gearing ourselves toward is preparing. We need to prepare. We need to know scripture. We need to know our task. We need to know good exercises for us to be able to do to strengthen our spiritual muscles. So we're going to be looking at the spiritual disciplines next. That's going to be our next study. We're going to be looking at prayer and studying God's word and fasting. And journaling is one of the ones in the book. We'll talk about that. But there's several different spiritual disciplines that we can incorporate in our lives to help us to grow in our knowledge of the Lord, to prepare us to fight. And so I'm excited to get to do that with you soon. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll be done with our time together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the book of 1 Timothy. We thank you for the charge that you have given us. Most high, sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who dwells in unapproachable light. Father, you have charged us, your church, with this monumental task. Be a pillar for the truth. Be a buttress of truth. Stand as a light in our community, clothed in your word as it produces godliness in our lives so that others may see our good works and praise you who dwells in heaven above. Father, we want to be that lighthouse in our community. We want to be out and about and telling people about the good news of salvation and new life that we can have in you. We want to see your church filled with people who are hungry and thirsty for you. Who drink and just can't get enough because of how sustaining you are on our lips. Father, would you so work in our midst. Raise up. Train us up. Raise up a group of godly warriors who fight on our knees in prayer, who are sustained daily by your word, who are ready to fight tooth and nail until our last breath or until you return. Father, you've given us this charge. We accept it from you. We ask you to strengthen us through your spirit that we might be able to be faithful with what you've given us. We love you. We thank you for your son and that you've sent him to die in our place. It's only because of that that we can pray all these things in his wonderful name, Jesus Christ. Amen.